Welcome to Ped Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. When you tell a pediatrician winter is coming, they're either going to think about the Stark family or bronchiolitis season. Since there are already plenty of Game of Thrones podcasts out there, we're going to talk bronchiolitis on this episode. A study published in Pediatrics found that from 2000 to 2009, bronchiolitis consistently accounted for around 1 in 6 hospitalizations for kids under 2 years old. So there's a reason we get ready for the avalanche every winter. The American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines for diagnosis and treatment in 2014, and that's going to be our jumping off point while we talk about what happens in bronchiolitis, what we do, and why we do it. To start things off, bronchiolitis is exactly what the name suggests, inflammation of the bronchioles, or the small airways. It's usually triggered by a virus. RSV is the most famous for causing prolonged or severe cases, but any virus that causes respiratory symptoms can do it. Bronchiolitis affects kids under 2 years old, with a peak between 2 and 6 months. But why them? The rest of us get the same viruses, so why don't we end up in the hospital? It comes down to little lungs. It takes a lot less swelling, mucus, and slough cells to cause airway obstruction in an infant than it does in a 10-year-old. Even when plugs do develop in older children and adults, the alveoli and small airways are connected to one another by the pores of cone and canals of Lambert, so blocked-off areas can still get some airflow. Unfortunately for kids with bronchiolitis, those openings don't develop until 3 or 4 years old. Bronchiolitis is first and foremost a clinical diagnosis. The history is going to sound like a viral illness, probably with some sick contacts at home or at daycare, with the symptoms getting a little worse each day. You should also be sure to ask about any risk factors for severe disease, like prematurity, low birth weight, and heart, lung, or neurologic conditions. Before we get too far away from risk factors, I want to take a minute to talk about palivizumab. I almost always pronounce that incorrectly. You have no idea how many takes it took to record that last sentence. So we'll use the brand name Synergis. Synergis is a monoclonal antibody against RSV that helps reduce the risk of severe infection in certain populations. For babies that qualify, it's given once a month for up to five months during RSV season in the first year of life. Who qualifies? Infants born under 29 weeks gestational age and those with chronic lung disease of prematurity or hemodynamically significant congenital heart disease should all get synergis during their first RSV season. And that's it. Cystic fibrosis, neurologic disorders, and other conditions that you might think put you at risk for severe RSV don't really have enough evidence to support giving synergis. So if a question about whether or not your patient should get synergis comes up on a test, the only things to remember are prematurity, significant congenital heart disease, and chronic lung disease. Now let's leave prevention and get back to bronchiolitis. When you examine your patient, pay attention to signs of respiratory distress. Tachypnea is the most obvious, but grunting, nasal flaring, accessory muscle use, abnormal breath sounds, and decreased aeration are all going to help you when you're deciding just how sick your patient is. If the history and physical fit for bronchiolitis, the AAP recommends that labs and imaging really shouldn't be done as a routine part of your evaluation. They specifically recommend against doing viral studies because identifying the type of virus causing the infection is expensive and it isn't going to do much to change the treatment. On top of that, nasal or rectal swabs pretty regularly pick up prolonged viral shedding from a completely unrelated earlier infection, so not only are you identifying a virus that won't change your treatment approach, you might not even be detecting the virus that's actually responsible for what you're seeing. The one exception the AAP makes is to check for RSV in patients who are on Synergis, because if they're RSV positive, you can stop the injections. 
The idea is risk of a repeat infection during the same year is pretty low, and the cost of Synergis is pretty high, so it's worth stopping if they're RSV infected. The AAP recommendations are a little less firm about chest x-rays, but still lean towards not doing them. Studies haven't found any correlation at all between imaging findings in bronchiolitis and disease severity, so if you're confident in your clinical diagnosis, you can probably skip the x-ray. Imaging can sometimes be helpful in evaluating for lobar pneumonia, but that's a double-edged sword. Two studies, one published in Lancet in 1998 and another in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2007, found that children who had chest x-rays were more likely to be prescribed antibiotics than those who didn't, and that there was no significant difference in outcomes between the two groups. When you're trying to decide about labs or imaging, bottom line is that if a test is going to change your management, you should order it. Otherwise, don't be afraid to trust your judgment. Judgment also comes into play when you're deciding the disposition for your bronchiolytic patient. There are obvious cases on both ends of the spectrum. The baby with a normal respiratory rate and a lot of nasal secretions can probably just go home, while the one who's retracting away on 5 liters of oxygen definitely needs to be admitted. But what do you do with the ones in the middle? The best thing to do is talk to the family. Tell them what you think is going on, what to do, and what to watch out for if they go home. If they can keep up with cares at home and have the ability to get back to a doctor if they need to, you can think more about letting them go home. If there's enough worry from either you or the family, it might be best to stay a little longer. Treatment is where the new guidelines made some of the biggest changes in bronchiolitis management. Essentially, the writers looked at the evidence behind the most commonly used treatments to see what worked and what didn't. Here's what they found. Albuterol is out. The previous guidelines said beta agonists were an option, but randomized control trials haven't shown any consistent benefit to using albuterol in bronchiolitis. The new guideline also cites six reviews and meta-analyses that show that bronchodilators can improve symptom scores in the short term, but really don't do anything to affect the disease course, length of stay, or need for hospitalization. The same goes for acemic epinephrine. It can help with short-term symptoms, but it doesn't change the end result. The guideline does leave some room for nebulized epinephrine to be used as a rescue medication in severe disease, but there's not much data in either direction. Systemic steroids are also off the list for bronchiolitis. Most of the evidence for this recommendation comes from a 2010 Cochrane review that included 17 different trials with a total of over 2,500 participants, both inpatient and outpatient. So it was pretty extensive. For outpatients, kids who got steroids weren't admitted any less frequently than the ones who didn't. On the inpatient side, steroids made no difference in length of stay. The evidence says it doesn't make a difference, so we don't do it. So what can you do? Hypertonic saline nebulizers are still an option. The saline works in two ways. It helps draw water into the secretions to make them thinner and easier to mobilize, and it also acts as an irritant to stimulate a cough to clear the airways. The authors of the guideline found that hypertonic saline nebs didn't make a difference in hospitalization rates when they were given in the emergency room, but there was some potential benefit for inpatients. There's conflicting data, so it's only a weak recommendation, but it might help reduce length of stay. The main benefit seemed to be in patients whose expected length of stay was over three days. Like I mentioned, the data wasn't entirely clear, but it might be worth trying. This probably goes without saying, but you should also make sure your patient stays hydrated, even if that means giving fluid through an IV or an NG. Kids often don't feed as well when they're sick, and the high respiratory rates that go along with bronchiolitis lead to increased insensible losses. So these patients are set up for dehydration, and you're better off preventing it rather than trying to catch up later when they start getting sicker. 
Supplemental oxygen is still part of the treatment plan, but the guidelines are a little looser on when to use it. If the patient's saturations are 90% or higher, you probably don't need to give any extra oxygen. If you remember the hemoglobin binding curve, once you get to 90%, it takes a pretty large increase in arterial oxygen to increase saturations, and there isn't any evidence to suggest that saturations over 90% lead to decreased symptoms or better outcomes. The guidelines also suggest that continuous pulse ox monitoring might do more harm than good, at least when it comes to length of stay. Hypoxia and desaturations are one of the major determinants of length of stay, and based on the evidence, they don't necessarily need to be. I just mentioned that saturations over 90% don't seem to have any benefit, but there's also some evidence that brief desaturations can be pretty normal. In 2011, Carl Hunt and his colleagues published a study in the Journal of Pediatrics looking at pulse ox readings during sleep in term and preterm infants through six months of age, corrected for prematurity. They defined a desaturation as a drop of 10% from a stable baseline that stayed below 90% for five seconds or longer. When all was said and done, they found that intermittent episodes of hypoxia happened in 74% of preemies and 62% of full-term infants, but that the difference wasn't statistically significant. They also saw that the incidence of hypoxia in preemies decreased as they got older, and that in both groups, the desaturations were unrelated to any change in respiratory pattern or heart rate. All in all, it looks like brief desaturations can be a normal part of infant development and breathing. That being said, some kids are going to need oxygen, and some of them will end up on a high-flow nasal cannula. High-flow helps through a couple of different mechanisms to give more respiratory support than a standard nasal cannula. Mechanically, the high-flow rate helps tent open the upper airways and gives just the littlest bit of positive airway pressure, making it easier to breathe. On the physiologic level, a high oxygen flow helps oxygenate dead space in the airways, and warm, humidified air helps conductance, compliance, and gas exchange as it moves through the lungs. The studies on the benefits of high flow are mostly small, although there was one larger retrospective study in Australia that found a decrease in intubation rates for patients treated with high flow nasal cannula. If you've been taking care of kids for a while, you're probably wondering why I haven't talked about suction yet. The reason is that despite the fact it's a major part of bronchiolitis treatment at just about every hospital in the U.S., we don't really know how much of a difference it makes. It can provide temporary symptom relief, but there's also some evidence that deep suctioning prolongs hospital stays. The AAP tried to find enough information to make a recommendation, but in the end, there wasn't enough evidence on either side. The theme for today's take-home points is less is more. Bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis, so don't worry about labs or imaging unless it's going to change your mind. For treatment, suctioning might help, but it really comes down to hydration and enough oxygen to keep your saturations 90% or better. If you want to read the most recent AAP guideline for yourself, it's easy to find if you search for 2014 AAP Bronchiolitis Guideline. The guideline also has 242 references, so you can keep yourself in reading material for as long as you want to. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also send any comments or suggestions you have to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.